This is a reading of the expanded version of Jackson Elias's Nairobi Notes, which will be appearing in the Masks of Nyarlathotep Companion. These were written by Sam Zeitlin, and this reading is done with permission. Set 1 of Jackson Elias's Nairobi Notes. July 26, 1924. Arrived Nairobi by rail without complication. I checked into the Hampton House. Not a bad hotel, but I must wire Kensington to cover the expense and then went to meet with some of the local authorities and put out some feelers for cult activity and rituals. To contact. British Court Administration. Checked. Government House. Checked. Kenya Colony Administration. Checked. Colonial Secretary of Internal Affairs. Away until August 9th. African Rifles. Checked. Paramilitary Police. Totally uncooperative. East African Standard. Ditto. Nairobi Star. Checked. Ask for Smith Forbes. Kikuyu Central Association, KCA. Underlined. Nandi. Masai. Luos. Kipsigi. Somali. Despite my efforts, the only reliable information I managed to dig up was the name of a good barber. This from Miss Smith Forbes down at the Star. Perhaps I was asking the wrong people. Or was it the wrong questions? Regardless, I'll need to start looking elsewhere. One thing is clear, however. The official account of the Carlisle Expedition Massacre simply does not hold water. I suspect it was a slapdash affair cooked up to deal with the questions that sprung up around E.C.'s visit. I am cautiously optimistic, as this confirms my suspicion that the incident is fertile ground for a book. More later. Have to hunt down a bit of grub. Set 2, July 29, 1924. Last night I finally arrived at Andover Village, the closest settlement to the site of the massacre. My guide Thomas and I came on foot from Nairobi. There are no roads or even rivers to journey on. The natives are friendly enough, and my guide is a capable translator. I think he speaks more languages than I do. Had him teach me some useful phrases, just in case. He obtained lodging for the night in one of their small, thatched houses. It is in that house that I am currently writing and scratching my various itches. It is about six in the morning, and we are about to set off, before the heat of the day sets in. If my directions are accurate, it will be a long walk. If they're not, it will be even longer. Later. I had to go alone. Even Thomas abandoned me. Thomas, who just a few hours ago I would never have imagined to be so credulous. The villagers call this place the corrupt ground, and none of the local tribes will go near it. Superstition is truly the bane of mankind. I have finally arrived within sight of the crime scene, so to speak. It's quite dark out, and has been for some time. The walk through Aberdari Forest was pleasant, and the local flora is even more beautiful than I had expected. The air here is quite temperate, so my journey was more comfortable than I had anticipated. The cool mist of the morning hung delicately on the majestic trees. The smells of the forest, olives, figs, cedar, were enchanting, 
Everywhere I heard the buzzing of insects and the songs of birds and saw the footprints of deer and antelope. Things grew quieter as the day wore on and grew hotter, and I made my solitary way through the underbrush. My machete was needed only intermittently. I think I'll make camp a little nearer to the site itself. As far as I can see, there's nothing to be afraid of here, yet the animals and the people both seem to avoid this place. In fact, there isn't much here at all. I'll explore a bit and make some more detailed observations in the morning. July 30, 1924. My sleep was uneasy and I do not feel rested. Still, I woke up later than I had planned, exhausted by yesterday's journey. Looking at the massacre site in the daylight, I can begin to understand how this barren plot of earth has generated such fear in the tribesmen. The last leg of my journey was difficult. The underbrush here is much thicker and thornier. The silence here is disturbing after the cacophony of the forest, and a rancid smell hangs in the air. The clearing itself is a, about a half mile wide. Everything here is blackened and barren. The moist soil sucks gently at my boots. Nothing grows here. I refuse to give credence to the locals' primitive fears, but there is no doubt that this clearing has borne witness to terrible deeds. Even breathing the air here leaves a bitter aftertaste in my mouth. On the advice of my guide, we had discussed the matter before I left, I decided not to seek out the burial pits of the expedition bearers, as those have been turned over and refilled by the authorities. In truth, I was glad to leave. If there is some secret here, it eludes me. July 31st, 1924. I reunited with my guide when I returned to Endovu, and with his help asked a few more questions of the villagers. According to Thomas, the villagers say that the massacre site is cursed by a malevolent local deity, the god of the black wind, who lives atop one of the mountains to the north. They would say little more. I'll do some more digging when I return to Nairobi. I think I'll rest in the village for a few hours before beginning the trek back to civilization, or what passes for it here in Africa. Set 3, August 4th, 1924. Interview with Mr. Johnston Kenyatta. Mr. Kenyatta, a Negro folklorist and political agitator in Nairobi, an odd combination if you ask me, agreed to speak with me about the Carlisle expedition. This is a compilation of my shorthand notes. Having been warned by Miss Smith Forbes that Kenyatta possessed some radical political leanings, I tried to keep the conversation on the murders. Unfortunately, Kenyatta professed to have only limited knowledge of them. Kenyatta suggested that the massacre may have been perpetrated by a group known as the Cult of the Bloody Tongue. This cult is supposedly based up in the mountains north of Nairobi, no more than a day or two's journey from where I wrote my previous notes. He also claimed that the cult is led by a high priestess who is part of the Mountain of the Black Wind. This sounded like a garbled repetition of the superstitions of the villagers of Endovu. I, for my part, had encountered no signs of a death cult in Aberdari, and the villagers never spoke of this bloody tongue. I expressed my skepticism, but Kenyatta was adamant, asserting that, quote, the regional tribes all hate and fear the bloody tongue, more than famine or sickness or even the government, unquote. I carefully steered the conversation back to the topic of my investigation. Although Kenyatta is one of the most impressive Africans I have ever met, his English really is excellent. Couldn't help but be disappointed by his credulity. How could such a seemingly civilized gentleman spout nonsense about tribal magic, offering no protection against the cult? 
I'd bet those native shamans wouldn't be able to offer much protection against the Colt 45 or phosgene gas either. At this point, Kenyatta rose to leave, saying he had a meeting to attend. As we shook hands, he grasped my fingers a bit too long and too tight and stared at me intently. The god of the bloody tongue is not of Africa, he said quietly. Not of Africa. Although I can't imagine what he meant or even how he could know that one way or another, I returned his earnest stare and thanked him for his cooperation. On his way out, he told me to come back to Nairobi in the future when once things were different. I would, he said, always have a place to stay here. I can't say that I entirely understand his friendliness, perhaps some local custom? But it seems to me that Kenyatta was grateful just to have someone listening to his account. I'll do some follow-up interviews in Blacktown tomorrow. Set 4, August 6, 1924. After confirmation with a number of good sources, especially San Mariga Railroad Station, I have come to the conclusion that Kenyatta's stories of the bloody tongue are, if not true, then at least widely believed. I listened to numerous grisly tales of children stolen in the night for unspeakable sacrifices, and of creatures with enormous leathery wings flapping down from the mountains to carry off hapless Negroes. Could this be the urban version of the black wind of the village dwellers? At any rate, though these stories were widespread, there was a certain bogeyman character in their structure and repetition. Despite my efforts, I am still without solid evidence for the existence of this cult. The god of the bloody tongue is unknown amongst Western folklorists, and it fits none of the archetypal African patterns, neither in its supposed character nor in its predatory worship. Still, the fear in the eyes of the men and women I interviewed is real enough, and the Carlisle expedition wasn't butchered by a fairy tale. Set 5, August 6th, 1924. There's an unvoiced question hanging over all my work here. Why did Carlisle and the others come to Kenya in the first place? No matter what else I find here, I can't make a coherent narrative of the events without answering this riddle. I can't find any hint of a Kenyan itinerary in the earlier materials I've gathered. My gut says that the expedition must have found something in Egypt that led them southward. Note to self. Go back over the Cairo portion of Carlisle's itinerary with a fine-toothed comb. See if anything can be turned up. Set 6, August 7th, 1924. Interview with Lieutenant Mark Selkirk. Lieutenant Selkirk led the men who actually found the remains of the Carlisle expedition. This is a compilation of my shorthand notes. Lieutenant Selkirk is a tall, bearish man with a treacle-thick English accent. He came to Africa during the Great War and fought in the campaign against the brilliant and infamous General von Leto Vorbeck. After the war, he remained in Kenya under the colonial government. Selkirk is quite a personable fellow, and we talked for much of the day. Selkirk and I commiserated over the unpleasant trek to the massacre site and the decidedly less pleasant destination. Selkirk's men had more trouble than they had expected in finding the site. They'd hoped to simply follow the stench of decay, but it was entirely absent despite favorable winds. When Selkirk arrived at the killing grounds, he was startled to discover the corpses still in remarkably good condition, given the amount of time they must have lain there. Quote, almost as if decay itself wouldn't come near the place, unquote. That was the only sense in which the bodies were in good condition, however. The gore was unspeakable, and even the hardier men were made sick to their stomachs at the sight. 
The corpses had been torn apart and scattered haphazardly across the clearing, as if by wild beasts. But Selkirk could not think of any animals in Aberdare that would take such care to systematically dismember the bodies without eating them. Unimaginable, Selkirk called it, staring dully at his tea. Uncanny. Recalling the incident was obviously unpleasant for him, so I hastily moved on to a new topic. Lieutenant Selkirk believes that the official court account of the massacre was probably correct in stating that Nandi tribesmen were somehow involved, but he confided to me that he suspects the charges against the so-called ringleaders were trumped up. Wouldn't be the first time, he said darkly. Perhaps this is simply the way the things work here. Typical. Lieutenant Selkirk also confirmed for me that none of the bodies of the white expedition members were ever found. Only the corpses of Kenyan bearers were strewn across that barren plain. I didn't want to reopen any more old wounds, so I turned the conversation to other topics. The weather, infernal. Local night spots, the same, but for different reasons. And the previous day's cricket match, which I had the misfortune to attend. Of all the products of British imperialism, this must be one of the worst. Oh, for a decent game of baseball. When the sun began to set, I bid the lieutenant good day and set off. Set 7, August 7th, 1924. Important. Was at the Victoria Bar for a drink and met a man named Nails Nelson. We fell to talking, and I learned that he's a mercenary, although he seems to be a poor one. He worked for the Italians along the Somali-Abyssinian border, and fled into Kenya after double-crossing the WAP Brigade, as he charmingly calls them. We discussed my work on the Carlisle expedition. He was familiar with the subject, but more importantly, he claims to have seen Jack Brady alive in Hong Kong in March of 1923, three years after the Kenyan courts declared the whole expedition dead. Three bourbons, and I pressed Nelson for more info, but he had little to say save it was at the Yellow Lily Bar on Wan Shing Street. Brady was friendly enough when Nelson met him, but apparently guarded and taciturn. Nelson didn't push him. I don't know for certain how far I can trust this soused mercenary, but my instinct says that this is a major break. At any rate, I'm nearly done with my work here in Nairobi. If Brady is alive, maybe the others are too. There were no bodies. What really happened out there in the bush? Set 8, August 8, 1924. Preliminary Structure for a Carlisle Expedition Book. Introduction. The Players, Carlisle, Masters, Houston, Penhue, Brady, Anastasia, Carlisle's Lover. Itinerary. Media. Tell what happened. Explain why. Bloody Tongue? Conclusion.